When my old partner and I, Bailey, were at the DA's office, we were tasked once with logging in all the items that had been seized from an underground sex shop where they hosted different parties and also allowed people to go shopping. Numerous items were still in their packaging, but a lot of them were not. A lot of them were this loose and out and they had gathered them off tables and things of that nature. So when it came time to log them in, some of the items I knew and some of the items I didn't. I wasn't even sure what they were used for or who would use them. So finally, Bailey was getting tired of me asking her, what is this, what is that? And she said, how old are you? Like, how have you lived up till adulthood and don't know some of these items? So she took over the login because again, I had no idea. What is going on with the Long Island serial killer? If y'all are just finding us, I want you to know we have covered the Long Island serial killer case since it broke. We have had more than one expert panel already weigh in on this case. Tonight, the reason we wanted to do this particular episode with these two experts is because new information has come forward that I believe is going to prove critical. There are new witnesses. I cannot overstate how important, how vital, how critical additional witnesses are going to be to this case. Many of you have probably seen the press conference that attorney John Ray did with the police commissioner by his side when he broke down what one new witness has come forward and said about one of the victims being at the home of the accused serial killer, Rex Huberman. But John Ray tonight is going to tell you other victims have come forward. Other witnesses have come forward. There are affidavits that have been signed. It is so important to hear what he has to say tonight because this is an update that I believe the information that he has tonight could change the trajectory of this investigation. Shannon Gilbert was only 23 years old when she went missing May 1st, 2010. Her remains were discovered December of 2011. Now, law enforcement originally believed that her death was an accident. The search for her led law enforcement to recover more victims, four additional victims that had all been wrapped in camouflage burlap and discarded along a desolate beach off the parkway headed to Gilgo. Without Shannon Gilbert, there would be no case today. There would be no arrest, and there would be no pending trial. One of the victims that was recovered because of Shannon Gilbert was Jane Doe number 7, Karen Vergata. Now, Karen Vergata's dismembered remains were found on Fire Island. She had just called her dad to wish him a happy birthday, February 14th, 1996, and she was never heard from again. Two months after the Valentine's Day call, on April the 20th, Vergata's legs were found in a plastic bag. Her skull was found on April the 11th, 2011, near the partial dismembered remains of Jane Doe number three. AKA Peaches. 
Because of Shannon Gilbert, we're now able to make connections. We're able to see patterns. Evidence was able to be put together in a manner that led to the arrest of Rex Huberman. Tonight, we have two incredible guests with us. The first one, y'all know her, you adore her, Lisa Ravikoff, polygraph expert, and also a lifelong Long Island resident. Lisa, let's start with you. I've been to Long Island recently. I went by the home of Rex Huberman. Um, what is the vibe right now, in your opinion? In my opinion, I feel the vibe is pretty quiet. And that being said, I feel the most recent activity was when the press conference that John had recently, which we're going to be divulging into more on this podcast episode today, that unless something comes up pertaining to evidence, possible additional discussions of additional victims, uh, in addition to possible discovery that does get made public, the morale is overall, we know what's going on. We understand that this is the case. And now everyone is just sitting and waiting on additional facts and more information to come out. So it does kind of come in waves pertaining to attention to the matter. I do personally believe that more individuals residing on Long Island should be paying a lot more close attention due to the nature of information that has been released by John and his team in the affidavits that, again, we're going to be discussing today. And, you know, you bring up a great point because when all this first went down, of course, the entire neighborhood was just swarmed with law enforcement. And then, of course, the onlookers and then the people that do what they call true crime tourism. But when I was there, I mean, people were putting out decorations for Memorial Day. They were celebrating. They were, you know, kids were playing soccer. People were grilling out. I mean, I was able to go right up to the house. I saw his son walking down the sidewalk. I mean, it was not in any way what you would have. Well, let me say it this way. It was not what I had anticipated before I got there. But since the arrest on July 14th, 2023, I'll tell you one of the most incredible things that I have personally heard and watched, and that is John Ray. Our second guest, y'all are going to be so excited, attorney John Ray. Now, y'all, he has spent 41 years as a litigator. He's also a lacrosse goalie. I want to talk to him about that a little bit. And you know that right now he represents Shannon Gilbert's family. When he did a press conference along with Commissioner Harrison, he said something so important to me and just vital. If you do not feel comfortable going to the police, contact me. I will keep you, you know, shielded. I will make sure nobody gets your name. I will believe you. I mean, he gave victims not just a safe space, but let them know before they made any phone call at all that he was going to be there and maintain their privacy. So I just thought that was so powerful. So, you know, John Ray, welcome to Zone 7. And I just appreciate you. And I'm going to let you talk about how you got involved with the case and how you have navigated up until this point. How did the family, the Gilbert family, get in touch with you? Mary Gilbert was the mother of Shannon. After Shannon's bones had been discovered in the marsh in Oak Beach, she had been working with a reporter from the Daily News 
the New York Daily News, and um, his name was Steve Barcello. He was a photographer as well, and did reporting on Long Island, and also a native of Islip, and very involved in the case, which had developed. You know, all the bodies had been found, and Steve had done a lot of legwork in the matter as a reporter. He got in touch with me because I was representing a family where a murderer killed five five of them in a pharmacy in Suffolk County, just assassinated them when he was an oxycodone addict. And uh, one of them, you know, the woman who was shot dead, she, she had two children who could not speak for themselves at the sentencing of this fellow who shot her named Laffer. And so uh, Jamie's children needed a lawyer and the family hired me to speak on their behalf or on the children's behalf at the sentencing of Laffer and his wife. I approached that channeling the little girls rather than speak like a lawyer, you know, just speechifying. I, I decided to become the two little girls and I spoke and how they would have felt and what they thought. And it worked out, you know, it was a good, good tactic. It seemed to work. So Barcelo, who was sitting in the jury box with other members of the press for that murder, then came out afterwards. He knew me. I knew him and said, uh, can you help out this lady, Mary Gilbert, because the Suffolk County Police Department have made a mess of this investigation and uh, something's wrong. So can you talk to her? And I did. I met with her and Steve Barcelo in a bar restaurant in, in Islip. And I stepped into the case by calling a press conference at Oak Beach, in which we, I and Mary called for the Suffolk County Police Department to step out of the case and for the federal authorities to step into it. We sent a letter to the U.S. attorney. We held the press conference. And that was to be the end of my role. But it wasn't because the the reaction to that was that the a detective for the Homicide Bureau in Suffolk County wrote me a letter a few days later attacking my press conference statements and telling me how great was the Suffolk County Police investigation and how thorough and so forth and how they had all this help from the FBI and others saying that basically I didn't know what I was talking about and then doing something quite unique, which was to reveal what he said he heard on the 911 tape of Shannon Gilbert, the 23-minute tape, um, you know, which we get later on, many years later. So he made a statement about what they said. He said nobody was upset. Um, Shannon was not in any danger. Nobody expressed any danger. Everybody was calm at all times on that tape. And he personally attested to that because he heard it. And he put that letter to me personally uh, for reasons I could never understand because I was a, merely a private person, private lawyer who had, and had no legal standing in the case at that point. So I, he had no reason to do that. It seemed odd. And then he sent it to me on police union stationery, not on the county stationery, which was also passing strange for a dyed-in-the-wool detective who toes the line in order to work for that bureaucracy. And then to step out of line and reveal evidence during the investigation made no sense at all to me. Something was really wrong. Just a few days later, Chief James Burke was now the chief of police. 
Before that, he had been the de facto leader of the investigation because he was the chief of detectives for the district attorney's office, who were also parallel conducting the investigation. So he was in on it already. Uh, now he comes in, and within a day or two or so after he's in, that letter sent to me was published by the police department in Newsday and in you know a big black box and uh, with one or two sentences taken out. So it became their official uh, narrative and remained that up until now. That narrative was false. The statements contained in it were directly wrong. They were lies. And I didn't know that yet. So now I'd come into the case, you know, my ego was pricked because he's attacking me personally. <laughs> and, you know, uh, so don't do that. That's not a good idea. You poke people who like to fight, they fight. And that's, <laughs> yeah, that's not did. a good idea. I just have to say one thing. A 911 call that lasts for 23 minutes, there's no way she thought she was okay. Well, if you hear it, you know they, that everybody was not calm, that there was an argument, there was a big fight, there was a scuffle in, uh, in or about the house uh, of Joe Brewer, the John. You know that there were people who were raising their voices. You could hear Shannon say right at the very beginning of the tape, she says, someone is after me. Someone is after me three times. And then later on, she says, they're trying to kill me. They're trying to kill me. And there's other things like that, which her, listen, her whole, the whole tape is filled with her fear and it's filled with anxiety and it's filled with discord and, and anger. And, and then she eventually runs, you could hear her run. And then you hear this blood curdling, lengthy scream that she makes. And you could hear the voice of a man as well in that scream uh, right there. And then she runs again, knocks on doors and disappears. So it, it was completely contrary to what this cop told, told me and told the public. And they used that claim to support their belief that, look, only somebody that's a little bit out of their mind would have run when they were calm at all times and Nothing was, no threats were being made and her safety was not in danger. She suddenly runs. She must have therefore run into the marsh where she's ultimately found. She had to get there somehow. And of course she was crazed. So if she was crazed, and we know that because she was running away from a perfectly calm, nice situation, well, then she ran into the marsh and died from natural causes. That was their absurd uh, uh, selling story that uh, you know they were trying to to, to uh, peddle to the public and and it, and of course it works if nobody knows about what's really on the tapes when you hear what's on the tapes none of that was true and she ran because she really was in severe fear and danger uh, why for the very good reason that someone is after me someone and then. They were trying to kill her. They were trying to kill her. If she has that kind of fear, does it surprise you that she runs? And if they weren't trying to kill her, and if there was no reason to be scared, why the confrontation and the terrible blood-curdling scream as she escapes? For me, no dispatcher 
No 911 operator is going to stay on the phone for 23 minutes with somebody they don't believe. So even if you hadn't heard it, if you know it lasted that long, there has to be some credibility to it because of the actions that were taken by the operator alone. So here's the other thing. Lisa, I want to ask you, if you are there on Long Island and this new information is coming where we have one victim, four victims, seven victims, 11 victims, and now this 911 tape comes out, what is the overall sense now of what is going on in this investigation? To be frank, that no one really knows their head from their ass, um, that there is just so much out there, obviously, that needs to be gone through. But for me, as a private investigator and a polygraph examiner, it really comes down to the credibility whether it's witnesses that are coming forward and giving statements as to what experiences that they've seen, heard, or dealt with, it comes down to the credibility of even just the investigators. I don't want to shoot fault on the on the department, but we also, I think, maybe need to look at track records of some of the officers involved in the investigations, as well as some of the detectives, make sure that there isn't a history or pattern of any possible tampering with other investigations. Maybe this is just an additional case to their repertoire. And even looking at the track record afterwards, um, if we have an officer and or an agent of the department that maybe started their career with this case, has has there been a history since this case of any negative findings? And I'm definitely not the one to be anti-law enforcement at all because I will bleed blue as a civilian 100% due to the fact that I work with a lot of agencies around just not New York and Long Island, but across the country. But I think it does come down to credibility being a huge thing, especially with regards to witnesses in this case. Um, A lot of people may think that they see something. A lot of people think that they may have heard something, but it comes down to just addressing that the right information is being put out there at the most appropriate times. And in this situation, it's always about making sure that you follow up with the intel that you're given, whether it's a phone call and you think that the guy could be crazy still follow it up anyway, because maybe the person's not crazy. So every stone, every every stone has to be unturned. Every stick has to be picked up. Everything does need to be looked at. And this is not an investigation where any agency, whether it's state, local, or federal, can go ahead and turn a blind eye on. And you know, once the arrest was made, his stature is going to set him apart. If you met him, you would remember that. If he frightened you or threatened you or attempted to harm you, you would know that. He would be such a figure, just this gigantic man that you wouldn't be able to forget that. And I think one thing that John Ray has done very well is when these folks are coming forward, he doesn't just run and immediately do a press conference. He talks to them for three hours. Then he talks to them for another three hours. Then he talks to them for another three hours. Then he hands them off to Commissioner Harrison, where they vet them as well. Lisa, you've even offered, if anybody feels like they want a polygraph, to take that polygraph to the police or to John Ray before to say, hey, I'm telling the truth and I want to prove it to you. I mean, you've made that offer. I've actually made the offer directly to um, the commissioner himself, as well as the um, deputy police commissioner. And I've even offered the services, the guards to, and someone does not feel comfortable taking an examination or speaking with someone that is a direct employee of the agency that as either a subcontractor or a private civilian, I would even offer to donate my time 
to go ahead and do these examinations and then turn over the work product to the necessary people just so that it's completely unbiased. And there can be um, a formidable response in reaction to the results of the exam. And I just want to, again, state very clearly that Commissioner Harrison and John Ray and now Lisa Rabakov, all three have offered to keep confidentiality, to make sure that you know you've got a safe place. So I appreciate that again. So, John, let's talk about some of the new information that you got. Four witnesses have come forward and two of them with you have signed affidavits. And you feel like at this point, the information that you have is going to directly link Rex Huberman to Shannon Gilbert and Karen Vergata. Well, that's what the witnesses do in their affidavits. The two that gave affidavits, the other two uh, link Huberman with sex workers in a serial way. And one of them links Hoyerman to other misbehaviors of Hoyerman. And I use that word very mildly for his terrorizing behavior that he actually engaged in. And then since the press conference, we've had more. Naturally, we had more people call with more evidence. Some people call who have, you know, questionable evidence and potentially questionable credibility. And others who have credibility. And so I've gotten more. I've gotten more affidavits and I've gotten more evidence. And I'm continuing to get that pretty much on a almost a daily basis. The confidentiality is protected until they tell me otherwise. And I don't turn the affidavits over to the police without their permission. It is I who draft drafts the affidavits after carefully vetting these people for hours and hours, and then then it takes a long time to draft the affidavit, present it to them, trying to make sure that it reflects accurately the words they spoke, and then they go over it, make corrections, we fix it, and then they we go back to them, I go back to them, and they sign the final draft. So there's a lot of that goes into it. Keep in mind that these people did not want their names out there. They don't have the ulterior motive of fame, greed, making money on the, on their their testimony or, or, or their claims. So, John, I know that you are a lacrosse goalie, and my son is also a lacrosse goalie. He plays at the University of Alabama. So this is what I say to him. Sometimes, especially early on in his career, he would get so frustrated if he let one goal in, right? And he just felt, he felt like, you know, that whole world was on his shoulders. Well, I told him once, I said, listen, think about the reality of what you're doing. In order for somebody to make it all the way down that field and nobody stop them, nobody get the ball from them, nobody knock the ball out of their net, and nobody on the defense blocks them, stops them, turns that ball over. Every single person has failed. You're the last shot. That is how I see you with Shannon Gilbert. You're her last shot. Well, maybe that's true. I, I hope it isn't. Um, you know, we have a new team. So playing for the old team, uh, as we know, didn't work well. Uh, they, they didn't let players on the team. <laughs> the, the police is who I am referring to. But now we have this task force and 
one of the key players was Rodney Harrison, who opened the door to not only the release of the tapes that I was not allowed to share with the public by the court order, but also uh, to these new and creative techniques of going to use people such as such as I to uh, continue to work on the investigation of this these matters. And you know, Rodney and I held a press conference, a joint press conference, which announced that to the public. So it opened the door to a lot more information, many more people coming forward, more more evidence that we've had and we you know dutifully hopefully can share it with the police who are the investigative body of the task force and i've done that with the permission of the people who speak to me in that sense uh, you know yeah i'm a goalie but um you know i you can be the best goalie in the world and i've played uh, now for i'm going into my 58th year of playing and you can still be the you know best goalie in the world and if the team, you know, if the defense isn't there and the middies don't play well, they're going to score. No matter how good you are, they are going to score. And in a sense, uh, the adversary here, who is who is Rex Hoyerman and his cohorts and whoever else is involved in these things, which is widespread, they're going to score. If we don't have a creative approach, uh, an open form to gathering this information. It's that simple. I just had a question for John talking about teamwork and obviously making sure that we have adequate resources to support um, not only John's efforts, but just the efforts of the investigation. Um, John, my question for you is, where do you see the investigation going, knowing with the departure um, soon to be of Commissioner Harrison and uh, Deputy Police Commissioner um, Anthony Carter departing. Do you think that we'll still have, um, meaning just me as just as an investigator overall, but obviously not tied to the case, but just with your experience uh, working this case, do you think that you'll still have the backing of the department as well as um, the task force as a whole? I'm not sure. I'm not. I I don't really know. I wish I could answer you easily, but I don't know. Uh, you know, Rodney opened the door. I don't know how many people resisted him within the department, there had to have been some who re resisted him for sure. You know, w will that element dominate now through a, a new commissioner? I can't answer it. I don't know. But it won't stop me. I'll still go. John, for me, the witness that you talked about that came forward that went to the Humerman house for the party and then tied in an NYPD officer and then tied in, you know, the victim and exactly what she saw, who was there, what happened. And then she, when she saw the photograph of Vergara, knew that was the girl that had been with them and was very clear, a lot of that checked out for me. What I had already believed, and I, and I will say it again here, I've said it before, but there is no way his wife had zero understanding or knowledge of at least some of his activities, I'll call them, in order for her to process all of this. If somebody were to come to me and tell me that my husband was even having just an affair 
I wouldn't believe it. I, I couldn't let myself even see maybe some signs of it. But if you were to come to me and tell me that he, you know, had been murdering people and leaving them down the street from my home, it would take me more than six days to believe that. I hear you loud and clear. That's one of the many different circumstantial uh, elements, if, if not evidence themselves, that of that points toward Mrs. Ellerup and uh, and her involvement in the uh, sexual behavior of Rex Horman, and at least in that, you know, take into account this as well. They're married for twenty seven years. Not only do I have witnesses who say that he was regularly being serviced by sex workers in the basement of his home over the course of time, and several of them, uh, serially so, but also uh, take into account that Sheriff Toulon's uh, searches of, of sex workers in the jail have produced the same information or similar information. You know, that he was, he, he was really, he being... Uh, Horyman was really completely addicted to to sex workers, and it cost cost him a ton of money as well. So you have that kind of evidence that's there, and then you have the witnesses that have come forward and signed affidavits to this effect. And uh, I have others who have not signed affidavits, but have indicated one who indicated Horyman, in her knowledge, was serviced at least twenty times, and. And there were other girls lined up in some cases to, to do to service him, all in that teeny weeny house. And now that brings you to the teeny weeny house issue. It's thirteen hundred and forty three square feet. You know that's the size for many people of a bungalow, if that. It sits on a piece of land, which is point one sixth of an eighth acre. So it's a little over a tenth of an acre. So it's it's hedged in on two sides, coming off the street by other people's properties. So it's squeezed into this teeny space physically, and it's squeezed itself into its own physical space. So if the wife is up on the main floor, when any of these things are going on over the course of all those years, he's downstairs. You mean to tell me in, in, in that tiny little space, she never experienced any of these uh, girls coming and going and and had nothing to say about it. And then you know, the, we know that the girls say they would enter by w walking up the side of the house and going around the back uh, of the house to get in. So how would they get by? If you look at that house and see the space, it's almost no space at all. In other words, how could they not have been noticed? You know, there are windows on the house. <laughs> and and this is the, the the age of cell phones and computers. And you mean to say she had no knowledge of where, the whereabouts of her husband during all these trysts? It's an absurdity, in other words, to suggest that she had no knowledge. And again, I've been to the house. There's nowhere to park. That driveway, maybe you could get three cars, maybe one car if it's parked in the yard. And then there's houses so close together. There's other, you know, driveways where you would obstruct somebody else if you were to park eight cars out there. Correct. And it's so tiny a place that it, it, it no reasonable person can believe that 
someone in that house would not have knowledge in some respects of what was going on in the basement of that house. It, it, it just can't be. Can that be? Well, I've also said this several times, and I'm going to say it again. There's no such thing as a part-time serial killer. There's no such thing as a part-time rapist or any type of predator. This is what they do full-time. They're either driving around stalking for victims, they're online looking for victims, contacting these sex workers, trying to get meetings with them. I mean, he had seven cell phones. He had parties at his house that we now have confirmed through witnesses. Um, so this is something, again, he did all the time. He could not hide it. He didn't try to hide it. Well, not only that, but, you know, any claim, and this is what you, this claim you did hear from uh, many, many people who were naive, um, <clears throat> including in the media, the claim that, oh, she's an abused woman and, you know, she, she, she couldn't do anything about it. She, she had no control. And so we should feel as badly for her as we do for the, the victims. Well, no, the victims are dead. She's alive and well. Her whole behavior from the first time she was confronted by the press at her or even greeted by the press at her home and since then right up until now and the history of her, her behavior that we now know about all suggests just the opposite of somebody who was abused. And indeed, one of the witnesses that I have suggests that she was in charge in that house. She was the one who called the shots in that house. And surely when you, when you see, you know, she, her greeting to the press was nasty right away, and she gave them the finger. Every time anybody spoke to her, she gave them the finger. Not once, but several times. Uh, you know, this is a woman who said, well, um, some words to the effect that, well, it'll be what it'll be. Um, it is what it is as to her husband's behavior. It is what it is. Really? That's what you say? You know, when, when you learn for the first time that he's a, he's a murderer? <laughs> Come on. Who says that? You know, so does that sound like somebody who's being abused, um, shrugging off this thing? As, uh, I don't think so. And, and we know that she, she traveled all around the country and to Iceland. Right in her 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 time, uh, going all to these Comcon conventions, that in, in various parts of the country, and we even have uh, exchanges that she made in uh, over uh, her email uh, back in 2010 time around then, uh, where she's perfectly happy lady going back and forth and chatting up with friends. It doesn't sound like an abused person to me, and there's not a scintilla of evidence, other than surmise which is not evidence that somehow she was an abused woman. Now, I've just had another witness come forward that gives me information that's just the opposite. You know, how can anybody ignore that she had knowledge of the sexual perversions uh, in which her husband engaged over all this time? I just don't buy it. She's out peddling her memoirs to write a book and uh, to have a movie. She's peddling her movie rights through her lawyer as we speak. She may already have solidified a, I'm told, a seven-figure deal. Does that sound to you like a woman who's abused? You also know that within, not only does she right away you know, file for divorce, 
she, within days of that filing of the divorce, within weeks maybe, we could say, she's already taking steps to transfer the properties that he owns to herself. So, for example, on September 22nd, the deed to her house was signed by Hoyerman over to her, 100% for, quote unquote, a nominal uh, amount, which is could be a dollar. And it's now solely in her name. That is presumptively a fraud on creditors that... Um, given the the knowledge that we have that he is a potential debtor and an actual debtor to many, many people. You can't just transfer property in, to defraud the creditors and say, ha ha, look, my wife's got it, too bad on you. Um, that transfer triggers should trigger the foreclosure on that house of liens that the federal government has and the state government has for tax uh, purposes. But also, there are other creditors in the wings. What about the victims, uh, the families of those that we, we know he murdered? They, they're creditors. And this is a transfer in fraud of creditors. That's, these are the kind of people we're dealing with. They are ruthless, ferocious, ugly people. Well, I have said on more than one occasion that I think this case is deeper and wider and uglier and more twisted than people think. I don't think there's a net big enough at this point that's ever been created to be able to cast the characters and the the typical who, what, where, why, and whens to really bring this whole thing together. Because every time one stone gets unturned, there's something else underneath a new one. So it's going to be an ongoing investigative process. And the key thing is, is making sure that the appropriate resources are allocated and the most appropriate trained professionals, their time and their efforts are allocated towards this investigation. Yeah, it's it's grown in scope as to the circumstances in which the atmosphere, rather, in which Hoyerman operated for all these years with impunity. The circumstances of that are broad. They, they require broad searches and broad work. And I honestly don't think, I think the task force is going to necessarily be focused on the murders they can prove and and in confirming and building up that proof and other you know circumstances that they are aware of actually but not the broader circumstances that that we're chatting about tonight so they may not have the, the resources to do that so a lot of that that kind of information showing you the atmosphere in which they worked the Hoyerman and whoever else it's going, going to go by the boards. You might say, well, so what? Because it doesn't do anything. Well, you know, collectively, knowing the circumstances, knowledge is always good, but collectively, that kind of knowledge can be material to the proof of the case in the long run. So it, it would be a shame if all this kind of information, which is out there, some of it being garnered by, by me and, and maybe by others for all I know, can be, you know, used, won't be ignored. Well, Lisa Rybakov and John Ray, I cannot thank you enough for being with us and putting a spotlight on this case, unlike we have heard before. Thank you both so much. And I'm going to end Zone 7 the way that I always do with a quote. I hate most prostitutes. I didn't even want to pay them for sex. I also picked up prostitutes as victims because they were easy to pick up without even being noticed. I knew they wouldn't be reported missing right away, 
and might never be reported missing at all. Gary Ridgway, I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7.